1: Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
2: Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombus donates an item to someone who needs it.
0: Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombus.com slash ACAST code ACAST.
3: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves.
1: to the founders, and all that they profess to hold dear. And if this is America first, then America is fucked.
2: Hey everybody, welcome into another episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast. I am Mike Leon. And
4: I'm Nick Saveri.
2: On the program today, you know, some bills have come before the House and Senate recently. Some have passed. Some have failed. We'll examine two specifically in the PACT Act uh, that will help veterans and the assault weapons ban that you would think you would think, Nick, would pass with flying colors. But in the words of college football analyst Lee Corso, not so fast, my friends. Uh, More on those bills in just a bit. Uh, Plus, speaking of voting out members of Congress uh, not doing their jobs, New York Times politics reporter Maya King She joins us later on in the program. Uh, She recently wrote an article, if you recall, a few weeks back, Nick and I discussing it about what young voters think of our current politicians. She wrote this fantastic piece. Maya is going to be joining us later on to break down not only that piece, uh, but some of the key midterm races she has her eye on, uh, not only in Georgia, where she resides, but some other states. But first, before we get into all of that, a housekeeping note, October 27th, the date is set. We have mentioned it before uh we, the venue still tbd uh time still tbd but if you are in the dc area come on down to dc keep following our show handles across ig twitter tiktok at can we please talk podcast on twitter at can we please talk we will be announcing the venue and the location for our live show october 27th in dc we've got five fantastic guests lined up on the program working on a sixth right now couple segments some giveaways and some food and drinks, uh, free tickets, obviously. So you, all you got to do is come on by if you are residing in the D.C. area, if you are in the tri-state area, you want to drive down, down to D.C. and see Nick and myself. I know Nick and I are excited for that. Uh, now let me turn to the Pat Toomey to my John Stewart, uh, Mr. Nicholas Saveri. Nick, how are you, my friend? I wrote that joke <laughs> yesterday, funny. and I figured you would get a kick out of it. How are you? I
4: We're good. We're good. Yeah. It's just just hot like the like the rest of the planet. At this point oh yeah um but yeah we enter we enter august um finally taking some time i yeah <laughs> pushed it off long enough but more importantly though got back from my trip to arkansas i uh, had a good time there uh just felt really proud of the work that we we're doing uh at educate and you know was well received so um got to you know see some uh, <laughs> airports i've not seen before because i had a couple <laughs> of connecting flights and but more importantly though you know for anyone curious masking was a little here and there, you know, places that you wouldn't expect masking. I saw a fair amount of it. Um, you know, people, people were responsible. I didn't see any of that craziness that we see on these videos sometimes of passengers getting upset and fighting about none of it. It really felt like a return to form for airline travel. So that was a good thing.
2: Same thing with me. You know, I've been obviously recently traveling to New York, to Chicago for business. I I haven't seen, I mean, again, you want to wear a mask, wear a mask. You don't want to wear a mask. You don't have to wear a mask, but I, I haven't seen this nonsense that that happens in all these viral videos. I'm never that fortunate to have that happen. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but that I'm, that never happens for me. Um, let us transition to our first segment, because you and I have been texting about this, um, and this has happened uh, over the weekend, I believe. It may have broken on Friday, and then the Sunday shows covered it a lot yesterday if you weren't tuning in, and that is what happened last week in, in Congress. Um, Let's give you the overview, because the PACT Act is what we're going to talk about here. The Promise to Address Comprehensive Toxins, if you don't know uh, what the acronym stands for. This is a bill that was brought to the Senate uh, from Senator Jack Reed, who's a a senator for Rhode Island. He's the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee. And along with two other senators from uh, two different states, Montana and Kansas, John Tester and Jerry Moran, respectively, a Democrat and a Republican, They both sit on the Senate Veteran Affairs Committee, and they came up with this bill right, that would help address the health impacts of those who served overseas and were exposed to toxic hazards such as burn pits, radiation, and Agent Orange. I'm going to explain what all that means in a sec. The bill offers expanded VA healthcare eligibility for many veterans who were not previously covered by VA care. Um, I want to give some quick statistics here before we get into... The issues that played out across the media circle, if you haven't seen uh, Jon Stewart and Pat Toomey uh, doing their little exchanges here and there, as well as Ted Cruz, we'll get to that in a second, but some quick stats on veterans. Uh, There are more than two and a half million post-9-11 military veterans that have served our nation, about less than 1% of the population. 80% of those spent some time in an overseas combat zone. Over 2 million have served in Afghanistan and Iraq, spending one out of three years serving overseas. And then here's a big stat. There's an estimated 300,000 post 9-11 veterans who have psychological wounds, namely post-traumatic stress disorder and traumatic brain injury. And this is not to include the ones that are suffering through uh, what the Pact Act especially is is designed to help them with. Um, uh, Since uh, 2002, more than 200,000 service members have suffered Traumatic brain injuries, and these stats according to the George W. Bush Institute and the Syracuse University Institute for Veterans and Military Families. Now, okay, now why has this bill caught everybody's attention? Well, because back on June 16th, the bill passed uh, 84 to 14, right? Uh, to honor, and the bill, by the way, is named after Sergeant First Class Heath Robinson. Um, so, the bill passed 84 to 14. Okay, this was in June 16th, so it was waiting to go to the House of Representatives, of which. I believe it had passed as well, or at least had enough support to pass. But then the bill came back to the Senate due to some technical corrections having nothing to do with the substance of the bill. And the votes changed from 84 to 55, and the the bill failed on the Senate floor. Uh, There's been a lot of different exchanges as to why this bill failed. Uh, Senator Chris Murphy, who one of our favorites on this show, and uh, the representative out of Connecticut, he mentioned... um, Maybe it's because Republicans are mad that Democrats are on the verge of uh, and just passed climate change legislation, and they've decided to take out their anger on voter, vulnerable veterans. So that leads us into Jon Stewart going out there outside of the Capitol and making his claim and, and his ire known uh, as to why this bill didn't pass. And then the retort from a couple of the senators, specifically Pat Toomey and Ted Cruz, who are on the opposite side of this, that say, the bill has changed, that there is some type of discretionary uh, choice, I would say, as opposed to mandatory choice in terms of spending and where the funds get appropriated to. All right, so let's play a little bit of the exchange. Uh, it wasn't really back and forth, but first you're going to hear from Senator Pat Toomey that made the rounds yesterday on the Sunday shows, and then John Stewart, who uh, went himself across a bunch of different shows he was on special report with brett Baer. he was on cnn's the lead with jake tapper take a listen uh, to all of this
3: this is the oldest trick in washington uh people take a sympathetic group of americans and it could be children with an illness it could be victims of crime it could be veterans who've been exposed to toxic chemicals craft a bill to address their problems and then sneak in something completely unrelated that they know could never pass on its own and dare Republicans to do anything about it because they know they'll unleash their allies in the media and maybe a a pseudo-celebrity to make up false accusations to try to get us to just swallow what shouldn't be there. Republicans are not opposed to any of the substance of the PACT Act. The honest Repu- my honest Democratic colleagues will fully acknowledge that my objection, and if I get my way, I get my change, it will not change by one penny any spending on any veterans program. What I'm trying to do is change a government accounting methodology that is designed to allow our Democratic colleagues to go on an unrelated $400 billion spending spree that has nothing to do with veterans and that won't be in the veterans space. Look, don't take my word for it. Read the bill.
1: Yeah. There's nothing in the bill that indicates spending about any other issue but veterans health and funding. And if there was, I would not have supported it. I don't know how many other ways to say this, but there was no budgetary trick and it was always mandatory. And when they voted in the Senate on June 16th, they actually got 84 votes. And you know who voted for that? Ted fucking Cruz! And every other one of those Republicans that switched their votes. There was no reason for them to switch the votes. Senator Marshall was one of the first supporters of this. Great, so why did he turn it down? Well, we just have to fix this budget issue. What's the budget issue? Because he voted yes for it when that budget issue was in it the first time. So what is it about it now that made him realize, oh, well, there wasn't, you know, the energy behind it. I don't know what that means. What are you fucking talking about? Seriously. Like, what kind of nonsense? I'm standing here with people on oxygen tanks. Like, what are you ta- do they understand that, you know, chips and reconciliation and all these things are, there are real people who face tragic consequences for their parliamentary fuckery.
2: All right, so you just heard their from both sides of this, uh, Senator Pat Toomey, like I mentioned there at the top, and then John Stewart. And obviously the clip that we played at the beginning of the show is uh, the takeaway that, uh, and the soundbite that's been making the rounds from John Stewart's uh, passion speech that happened on Friday, I believe. So with that, Nick, let me turn to you because I know you've been watching this and you watched that long 10-minute uh, Stewart speech there on the, on, the, on the steps of the Capitol after this happened you and I've been exchanging text messages about this i mean uh this started to get a little bit more of my attention as you know my brother-in-law is active in the military my uncle is a veteran uh from the military so there's there's a bunch of different you know emotions here and he has uh my uncle has some physical ailments nothing crazy but um and obviously served a long time ago um so but we want to take care of again when i always talk about this legislation wise Or politics-wise, you ever you notice I never try to do R versus D, R versus D. It's about who's paying for this? Who's paying for this on an emotional level, physical, who's paying for this financially? Right. And this bill impacts a subset of people that protect us daily, weekly, monthly, yearly. And they come back home and they have these ailments attributed to them serving overseas in whatever capacity. And we've got to take care of these people. So I can see, you know, in terms of the language that Stewart's using there about how, why this is important. Right. Uh, he mentioned on another show, there was another advocate. There were two advocates that's been with him from the beginning, because he's obviously an advocate for the 9-11 commission and, and, uh, you know, all the funds that get secured there for the first responders, that I've passed away from that. And then he's on this veteran thing. And he's like, I've had three people that have been advocating with me. They're all dead because of this. Like they're all dead because of, you know, this is all caught up to them from the, the years of not getting the treatments because they weren't getting the funds. So I wanted to get some of your takeaways on not only hearing some of the sound bites there, Senator Pat Toomey is obviously the senator of your state in Pennsylvania. Uh, give me some of your reaction when you heard this, uh, the news come down on Friday.
4: Yeah, you know, I heard the I saw the Stewart video um, Thursday. You know, I was in transit. I'm at the airport. Um, I just got a chance to watch the. It was like like nine minutes and thirty five seconds, um, and it was incredible. It was, you know, Mike, you and I talked a lot about messaging and you know the importance of being clear. And it's funny because you know, for those who are sensitive to profanity, that's where we are in American politics. But it is a place of frustration for many Americans. You know. I mean, I could or film this this video for everyone, but I'm not going to. Um, but some of the things that really stood out was first, you know, the accusation of this type of spending, you know, the 400 billion dollars that Toomey brings up of discretionary, and Stewart categorizes this as this idea of you know labeling the slush fund, you know, that it could be just money used for anything, you know, and Stewart, you know, rightfully brought up the fact that. You know, when you look at a slush fund that Republicans and Democrats tend to push through Congress annually, you look no further than our than, than defense spending. you know the 2021 defense spending bill or defense spending in the United States was 801 billion dollars And you could basically lock that in year over year not exactly 800 billion dollars, but it's always going to be one of the biggest expenditures that gets passed through Congress with no conversation whatsoever.
2: Yeah I think and last still, year was I think last year was 747 if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, anyway, i different. Yeah, but it's it, exactly, But it's
4: always yeah. one. It's it's always one of those large numbers that, and funny enough, it doesn't even get enough media coverage. If we're really going to dig into where the money goes, as you brought up, so Stuart brings up the fact that we're going to argue, we're not going to argue about military spending, you know, full on, but we are going to argue about this one, and that feels disingenuous. You know, Stuart to his credit, coming off the Daily Show, this has been one of the biggest causes he's fought for you mentioned you know his presence fighting for people who who fought for us who you know who were there for us on 9/11 um, first responders in particular and now we're seeing this situation and Mike I want to read to you for everyone actually you know typically with a bill you break it into titles you know these are subsections of where of who is impacted or what's going to happen with this bill and I want to read the, the title of a couple of components here of this bill. First is expansion of healthcare eligibility. Sounds sensible to me. Title two: Toxic Exposure presumption presumption process. Title three: Improving the establishment of service connection process for toxic exposed veterans. Title four: Presumptions of service connection. Not the sexiest of names, but there's nothing in this bill that I just read you all that indicates anything to the effect of something that you wouldn't do for veterans. You know, Mike, I don't, I don't. We didn't get really into it, but one of the big things that, that Stewart had talked a lot about when he restarted basically his media return, essentially on his podcast, his show, and I think, which is on Apple Plus, I think. Correct. Right. Burn pits. You know, the fact that you have these burn pits that are built out where you're basically just throwing trash and all kinds of materials, they're setting fire to it. And the military, you do is just to get rid of waste, right? But the problem is that as you do that, the people who are around there are inhaling these fumes and it's toxic. And these folks have no other choice. This is called service, right? They come back with these ailments. And right now, healthcare is not addressing it. And it was one of the biggest things that the PAC that would be able to help do is expand what we classify as services that are provided to veterans. The one group of people that Stuart brings up, and I'll say it here, you know, Republicans are always fantastic, and Democrats to some extent too, about defending the veterans. You know, They always talk about it. They put pictures up, Memorial Day, um, Veterans Day. It's all about the veterans, right? It's the NFL. And then suddenly something like this comes through and we're arguing about mandatory versus discretionary spending. It's its ridiculous. Um, and the fact that... And the Republicans are very... Uh, Pat Toomey in particular is very open about it, that this is what he considers a the fear of, of Democrats running wild with spending, which is a political trope that the left tends to spend more than the right. Bullshit. Look at your defense spending to counter that. Um, Republicans are really good about labeling what is unnecessary spending, but when it comes to things that are important to them, like say, oh, I don't know, corporate tax cuts, the sky is the limit. Mike, in this argument, it it's something that just you're seeing veterans push back on, Democrats pushing back on. I think it's going to pass. I think the heat is a little too hot at this point. There's no other way to just you know categorize it in the way that Stewart had said, which is this this is just fuckery.
2: You know, I will say, and to Pat Toomey's point, just to give some some fairness here, I get what he's talking about in terms of sliding in some type of spending that's not uh, a part of the bill. Right. Like it has no business being in there. If you recall, there was uh, when, when Biden was trying to get his major piece of legislation signed in there was some money that was, you know, allocated for like the Kennedy center. There it was like a $25 million as part of like the $1.4 trillion. And, and Republicans were like, why is this in there? Right. Uh, we saw in, in the, um, when we got that email, Uh, from, I forget the person's name, but that that wrote in about the baby formula bill. Remember, there was two of them, one that passed with overwhelming support in in the House. And then there was another one that was really allocating a lot of money to the FDA to like improve the process of approving. And it was like, but again, Republicans were pushing back. That's spending money on a government office that already has funds, right? So I get Toomey's overall point. I want to give some transparency and fairness there to him. But in this bill, that's not there. And to quote Stewart, read the bill. By the way, the Congressional Budget Office estimated that the, the PAC Act would cover about $279 billion over a decade. Okay. So those are statistics. And that, that was from June 16th. Again, bill passed 84 to 14, 55, uh, and, and then all of a sudden 30 Republicans, all Republicans, by the way, on that part, in terms of switching their vote and the bill got shot down. So now we'll not move to the House. Uh We'll find out what will happen with that bill? And we'll keep an eye on that and see you know, what happens with this, because you're right. Stewart was making the media rounds, even on Newsmax, by the way, which was the funniest thing. He was on Newsmax and, and I forget another program complaining that people won't hear about this because he hasn't been on Fox. And then all of a sudden later on, he pops up on Brett Baier. So great job by John to advocate for this. But he's right. You don't have to listen to him. You don't have to listen to Pat Toomey. Read the bill yourself. If you want to check out more. It's on Congress. Dot gov. Let's move into a second bill, Nick, because I know you saw this bill and sent this to me. And this kind of drew a little bit of your ire. And it's a little bit shocking to who voted for it and who didn't. Uh, the House on Friday night uh, in Friday evening, actually late night, uh, they passed a, an assault style weapons bill that now goes to the Senate. The final vote on this was 217 to 213. Listen to this. Democrats, Henry Cellular from Texas, Jared Golden of Maine, Ron Kind of Wisconsin, Vincente Gonzalez of Texas, and Kurt Trader of Oregon voted against the ban. Okay, those are five Democrats and, and two of them in a state that just had a massive school shooting uh, in Uvalde. Republicans, Brian, uh, Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania and Chris Jacobs of New York actually voted with the Democrats, which is how you got to 217 to 213. Without those two Republican votes, You don't get this legislation passed. And by the way, now it moves to the Senate, which probably won't get the 60 votes. But let's tell you a little bit about the bill itself. Um, The assault weapons ban legislation specifically calls for prohibiting the sale, manufacture, transfer, or import of various semi-automatic assault weapons, semi-automatic pistols, and semi-automatic shotguns, depending upon their features. Uh, This is from The Hill, by the way. You can read out this piece on thehill.com. For example, um, all these semi-automatic rifles that can accept detachable magazines or have a pistol grip, a forward grip, a grenade launcher. I mean, listen to some of this stuff. A barrel shroud. Why why is any person... (laughs) If I say those those terms out loud, you would think I'm playing Modern Duty, you know, Call of Duty, Modern Warfare, something like that. Like, why am I? Why is a, a person having access to a grenade launcher, a barrel shroud, a threaded barrel? Jesus Christ! Anyway, now, now,
4: now. To be fair, you know, when you go hunting for say Venice, oh my goodness, you know, sometimes geez. those deers are are, are wild now. You know uh, yes. this. And of course. there's nothing that's going
2: to take care of it in the grenade launcher. No, no, no. Oh, See, right. first off, it wasn't deer. I think it's like rodent. I think you're you you you're missing the animal that, that they were pointing to. Anyway. I mean, good um, luck to the pull, you know, shrapnel out of the <laughs> rodents that you're trying to eat, but that's fine. Right, right. Semi-automatic assault rifles with fixed magazines that can accept more than 15 rounds are subject to the ban. They would be prohibited under the new legislation if this passes. Uh, like I mentioned, House Democrats... Very weird that five Democrats voted no for it. Still trying to find out why those five uh, House House of Representatives Democrats voted no for it. We've been trying to get one of them on the program to discuss this. We'll see where this bill moves uh, to the Senate. But Nick, I know you had uh, some thoughts about this bill because obviously we're trying to pass sensible gun legislation. You've made a point here and I'm with you. Ban assault weapons, right? Point blank end of sentence. No person, the terms I just mentioned there, nobody should have access to that artillery. Nobody that's a you that's a civilian in this country does not need access to that. You want a gun to protect yourself? Okay. You know how I feel about that already. Nobody has guns, nobody can kill anybody anyway. Well, I'm not gonna get into that. You want your gun, hold on to your little pistol. You don't need an assault weapon. Uh, but give me some of your takeaways from reading some of the stuff that's in this bill. And then how it will inevitably get denied in the Senate, and then we'll just keep going in this vicious circle as another shooting will happen with somebody else getting access to this style of weaponry.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's not even a matter of like, you know, if, right? Like you're not gonna get 60 votes. Yeah, I I will be stunned if a single Republican supports this. Um and and therein lies the problem. I mean, it seems awfully common sense. You know, a high-powered assault rifle should be not available to a citizen of the United States. You have no need for it. Um, You know, there was a quote from Jim Jordan. um, Today, they're coming for your guns. Representative Jordan of Ohio, top Republican on the Judiciary Committee, said they want to take all guns from all people. Now, Mike, I want to notice something. First line says they're coming for your guns. Second, of course, is they want to take all guns from all people. This is the Republican line that... It's the slippery slope argument of, you know, you pass an assault rifle ban. Next thing you know, they're going to take away every piece of weapon you, that you feel as an American citizen you should have access to. It's bullshit. It's not complicated to have in a bill very spec- specifications about what can be included on the weapon that you are no longer allowed to have. If I say to you that you are allowed to have, say, a Glock nine or a forty-five, you can have a bill that says these weapons are allowed these weapons, not so much. Folks, anytime, Mike and I have been on planes recently, right? When you go at an airport, there's a big sign that says what you are allowed to bring on the plane. It tells you what is the measurement of the liquid you can bring on. Can you bring batteries? It, it has it in perfect graphic form that as long as you have the ability to read and or at least use your, you have conceived the visuals con, p- component, you're able to see it. Tell me you can't do the same thing with it, with an assault rifle ban. Remember, the last assault rifle ban was passed by President Clinton in '94, lasted ten years, and in 2004 under the, under the Bush administration disappeared. Right. So, I, this has been done before. <laughs> Governor, former Governor Gray Davis, California. Had an assault rifle ban. Former Governor Ronald Reagan also supported a ban on those types of, of type of weapons. This isn't not necessarily the Republican Republican Party has never been in support of any type of gun legislation. It's just the current version of the Republican Party that's not supportive of it. But it, it just seems like common sense gun legislation. And you know, I think the reason I sent those texts to you, the reason I was upset is you know I saw Representative Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, and she wasn't the only one that said you know we passed. Assault rifle legislation? No, you didn't. The House passed it. You did your job. Apparently. Should I give you a cookie? Is right. that what you want? Should I do, Should I give it to all of you? I got I got cookies here. I got little kids in the house, Mike. I actually got Welch's fruit snacks too. I can give it to everyone. I can give Delicious. it to everyone if you guys want. <laughs> exactly. Um, if that'll make you satisfied, stop celebrating that you did your fucking job. What you need to now do, what we all need to do, voters, young people. I'm talking about you too. Is you got to make sure that the Senate lays the foundation to have this bill passed, and that means a hell of a lot. You need sixty people to get this to go through. You're not going to get it, so it just annoys me to hear members of the House cheer, "Yay, we did our jobs!"
2: Come fucking congratulations. Get the other side to do theirs. Well said. When we come back, speaking of voting and why it matters. And you all know this from our recent episodes about this, but the fantastic Maya King, she's a New York Times politics reporter. She's joining us in the next segment, breaking down her fantastic article. You can check it out on the New York Times site or app. Just type in Maya King, wrote this piece about what younger voters are seeing from their president, from the people that are representing them at the House of Representatives, Senate level, and they're not happy. And do they... Come out in the midterms in 2022 and beyond. You'll find out in the next segment. Maya King, when we come back after the break. Nick, as always, our show is sponsored by the good folks at Bones Coffee. You go to Bonescoffee.com. Great tasting coffee at an affordable price. Come on, Nick, sell to people. Give them a give them a quick elevator pitch sell on why they should get Bones Coffee. Folks, I I say this almost every week on this show, right? Flavored
4: coffee, oftentimes just the flavor doesn't show up bones gets this right it is it, when they roast their beans they are imbuing those beautiful flavors into it currently we are all about the maple bacon here at the Zaveri household uh, we get it we get it freshly bagged we grind it here uh, it's just part of our daily routine i can't speak enough about it as mike said super affordable but just a huge library of flavors
2: whatever you're into they got you the world's freshest small batch coffee bonescoffee.com. There's sample packs on there. You can join their coffee club. You can even buy stuff in bundles. But when you throw everything into that little shopping cart, right at checkout, there's a promo code box. Enter in one word. Can we please talk? All one word. You get 15% off your first order. Head to bonescoffee.com today. All right. A couple of episodes ago, if you remember, we were discussing an article from the New York Times that referenced a survey from them and Siena College, which found just about 1% of 18 to 29 year olds strongly approve of the way President Biden is handling his job. And then 94% of Democrats under the age of 30 said they wanted another candidate to run two years from now. Well, joining us is the writer of that article, New York Times politics reporter Maya King. Maya, Mike Leonik-Savari, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast with us.
0: Hi, thank you for having me
2: absolutely my, Maya. we really we really enjoyed the piece and, and we referenced it a couple episodes ago and and nick did his get off my lawn speech to uh younger voters out there to try to energize them get off my
4: lawn because that implies <laughs> like hey i don't want you
2: part of this it's it's more inclusive like we need you a part of this like okay, these numbers right. are you know you, you, you <laughs> were yelling at them but you can go check out that my episode mind. but uh, anyway um th- all that will be edited out uh maya but for people who have not read the article okay we, we covered it like i mentioned it's a great piece. You can check it out on the New York Times site and app. Uh, take us inside some of the polling data that I just mentioned that you referenced in the article, and then the personal stories of the people that you interviewed for the piece and the piece overall.
0: Sure. Um, the New York Times is fortunate in that we have a pretty robust polling system. And our first big midterm election poll, we talked to folks across the political spectrum, race, demographic, age, political leading the story that i wrote with my colleague jonathan weisman focuses on the results that we found from younger voters i think one of the biggest uh, findings that that this that this poll reveals specifically for voters under the age of 30 so 18 to 29 just 1% approve of the of the way that joe biden is doing his job we have another a couple of other data points that show an overall or uh, underline the theme that younger voters are very fed up with leadership in Washington and generally upset and distrustful in large part of their leaders. And we were able to reach out to a number of the folks that we polled to ask them exactly why they were so upset to try to get some voices behind that 1% number and some voices behind the, the right track, wrong track, Figure that we also have in the poll, which is also significantly lower among younger voters. And essentially, what we heard from them was that leaders in Washington, leaders who are running my state, the folks who are in charge, are too old and too rigid to be able to rise to the occasion in the face of the number of crises that are taking place in the country. Chief among them, for younger voters, the big issues were climate change, the economy and the affordability of virtually anything, particularly though student loans, what all of these things have in common are along this feeling, or I suppose the reality that they could get worse in the long-term and that leaders, particularly those over the age of 70, don't understand the long-term implications of a lot of these issues because they've lived through a time when things were fine and because they won't be around When things get really bad, which is what a lot of these voters feel, uh, this country is headed towards.
4: Maya, not too long ago in the winter of 2021, um, it was Medicaid or Medicare. Always get these two mixed up, state and federally. One of which was, of course, passed through. More funding was directed toward that. You know, coming out of Congress. Uh, Most recently, we had about 600 billion, I believe, that had been allocated for Pentagon funding. You know, we see a trend that things are important for aging citizens, you know, senior citizens, almost entirely get through Congress, whereas something like student loan debt relief is just being put through through executive action. It's all temporary solutions. The trend continues to be that the needs of younger voters, uh, millennials, Gen Z, to a little extent, you know, potentially even our Generation X, are still not being met. You know, when we look at the rest of the world, like some of our youngest leaders here in Finland, Bhutan. The world is scaling younger, you know, with national leaders. Whereas in the United States, we tend to scale older. And I say all this because if the young people's response from the interviews you did was to say that we're checking out, that this isn't appealing to us, what is their response to how to how to bring about change if it's not through the polling, not through the polling places?
0: Well, I think there's a couple of things. Um, you're asking essentially what would be their response to this trend of basically folks sort of uh, trending younger but the policy not matching that age
4: a little bit of that but also you know the, the data that came from you know the from your article talks about the fact that younger voters at least you know by percentages are just not as interested in voting like with these particular candidates coming up and my my question is if it's not through voting how do the younger voters that you interviewed think that policy or any type of laws the things that matter to them will ever be brought to fruition?
0: I see. Well, it's interesting. One voter that we spoke with who was 25 years old um, went to college for data analytics, but drives a truck for Amazon now, very fed up with the direction of the country, but has been voting. However, the way that he votes is different. He wrote in God um, for president saying that if anybody's going to get us out of this, it's a higher power. And then did the same for a number of the top of ticket races in 2020 but paid laser, had, was laser focused on local initiatives and ball- ballot initiatives, constitutional amendments in California. That was where he saw, where he felt like he could make the most impact. So there's one example of someone who's really fed up with leadership, but is still going to try to do what he thinks is best. Other folks that we spoke with, other young people um, really weren't sure what they were going to do. Because staying home is not the best option, but the options that they do have on the ballot, they don't necessarily agree with either. A lot of the people that we spoke to who were in states like California, Colorado, Kentucky, Tennessee, wish they could vote for uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but they couldn't because they're not in New York. And so I think that it's now incumbent upon these groups who profess to mobilize and uh, turn out and appeal to young voters to start to put forth some candidates and policies that actually appeal to those groups, because that is probably one of the biggest unspoken parts of this story that we try to get at. But it's, it's a really big dynamic of young people who are really fed up, but don't often feel like. There's much they can do. and and I'll add to that to your earlier point about about folks being younger, but the policies not matching that. I think that older leaders, older politicians view a lot of the policies that stand to directly impact voters under thirty as far too progressive, far too the too far to the left to actually be viable, particularly on climate change. I know that the Green New Deal um, really for moderate Democrats and Republicans has been very vilified. It's kind of a bad word, a bad phrase to use. Um, However, the idea of sweeping legislation to combat climate change is kind of a non-starter at this point on the Hill. Um, And and really just sweeping legislation, period, to combat a lot of these issues is really thought of as far too progressive. And I think that's another source of the frustration for younger voters.
4: Adding to the story of that twenty-five-year-old you had mentioned, who I remember his quote about like being focused, you know, locally, you know, the the issues that matter most to him. Was there a sense also that maybe there's a separation of engagement that at the national level we're seeing, you know, what seems to be the Joe Bidens, the Donald Trumps, like really just old people, quite honestly, um, that continue to dominate the stage. Um, But is the opportunity that they are seeing more in the local sense of at the town council, mayor? Board of Ed, you know, being able to infuse more youth into into local positions of power.
0: I don't know if it's that they see the opportunity to infuse more youth more than they just see it as an opportunity to actually get tangible changes to pass tangible legislation. And that if you can look at someone in their face and listen to them and talk with them about the policy that they're that they're trying to pass, whether it's on the neighborhood level or the city level or even Um, state house district, that is a lot easier to swallow um, and easier to to mobilize behind than um, a law in Congress or even a presidential candidate. Like Joe Biden, who, as a number of voters pointed out to us in our reporting, made a lot of promises to voters across the democratic spectrum, including young voters, though, particularly on student loans, and they haven't seen those policies come to pass. In fact, they've kind of heard the opposite, which is I'm, I'm not willing to budge on anything higher. I think the threshold now is $10,000. And then it's also got um, an income limit as well. There are a lot of young voters who are or just young people who are really struggling, who are hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt and are saying that's simply not enough. Um, so I think that's a part of, a part of this too. Yeah.
2: Maya, I wanted to ask you because staying on voting, why it matters. Um, obviously, the midterms are coming up in November. Republicans, generally, at least from a data perspective, and and we've done some recent episodes on this, and some guests have mentioned this. They tend to vote more, you know, in the off years, in the midterm years, while while Democrats tend to sit it out. Uh, uh, so, the people that you interviewed in this article, do they know that? <laughs> stupid question. They know that. Do they know that seeing that type of data? If I saw that type of data, I would say, well, then Republicans are definitely going to take back the House and maybe even the Senate. So then further policies that I would want you know, enacted legislatively, people that represent what you mentioned, climate change, right? Uh, student loan debt. We're not going to get anything passed if, if I was a Democrat. We're not going to get anything passed if I sit it out. What says the politics reporter in New York Times who was interviewing these folks? Do they know that? Do they understand the importance of the ballot box?
0: All of the people that we talk to are, have, are who are, again, 18 to 29-year-olds, So that's from the, fir- the voter who voted for the very first time in 2020 to someone like me at 25, 26, who's only voted two or three times, are pretty avid voters. These are also people who saw and participated in the largest protest movement that our country has seen in history in the summer of 2020 and actually felt galvanized to head to the polls for both a um, pro-change, anti-Trump vote. And still, I believe the people that we spoke to, again, these are people who were polled by the New York Times. So it's also, you know, a a specific subset of youth. They all are are pretty set on on participating Um, again in November. Some of them are holding their nose and casting a ballot, but I think that 2020 really shook a lot of people into, a lot of young people into the understanding of the importance of their vote, even if the people that did ultimately get into office have proven rather disappointing to them. While you were asking that question, I was looking at one data point that we found here, which is that nearly more than almost a th- almost um, a third, but more than one in four young voters actually didn't know or refuse to say which party they wanted to control Congress. And I think that's worth mentioning because it underlines this element of mm, what's what's the word to describe it that young voters just maybe don't quite know what they want to see amid the chaos because both parties now seem like a. Um, neither party seems like a great option.
4: Shifting gears to the South, you know, a where you reside, um, you know, paying attention to voters down there. Yeah, you know, I want to call attention to someone that does seem to be galvanizing younger younger voters, or who's just galvanizing a voting base that I don't think Joe Biden seems to be drawing attention to, which is Stacey Abrams. Um, my, just in where you are, the reporting you're doing, what seems to be working. You know, for Abrams campaign, because it does seem I wouldn't say more robust. That's not the word I want to use here, but I'm gonna sort of put it as a placeholder. But there seems to be a different, broader, broader attempt or strategy that we didn't see in her previous election against Brian Kemp, which rightfully so was basically taken from her for um for the nonsense that the GOP did in Georgia. But what's your sense of that? Like how does how does uh, Miss Abrams appeal to voters across the aging spectrum?
0: money, being well-funded, having millions and millions of dollars to hire staff who are based in Georgia or in the South and understand the complexities of these different counties and communities to flood the airwaves with ads that appeal to teachers, uh, farmers, young voters, older voters. Um, my, My parents in Tallahassee received actually have gotten a ton of the, of Stacey Abrams' ads because the Florida Georgia line is one media market. So they too have been saturated with with Crow Abrams' content. And on top of that, she has this built-in uh, fundraising and organizing apparatus through Fair Fight, which was founded in 2018 and trained up in the last four years. Weeks of of young organizers who have gone on to work on her campaign, Senator Raphael Warnock's re-election campaign, a number of the other Democratic down ballot uh, races, which are proving to be a lot more impactful in light of a number of of laws passed in Georgia recently, and this sense, I think, among vo- all voters in Georgia or Democratic voters, I should say, that Abrams gets it, that she understands that she's homegrown, went to school in Atlanta. And, and have a grasp on on the issues that that matter to them. Um, I, I really I really think it, it boils down to her fundraising apparatus. but I will I will add the caveat that she has that she has so far. I, in, in my journalistic lens, she has spent that money to her advantage because organizing a winning campaign in Georgia is more than just throwing a lot of cash at it.
2: Maya, um, I'm glad that you got asked a question about Georgia because Georgia was a major reason why President Biden is the president of the United States. You wrote a piece about Herschel Walker recently. You did a piece on Stacey Abrams and obviously her run for governor, like Nick just asked, and how she wants to put abortion at the center of the campaign. So I want to ask you holistically, I know you covered the South, but um, besides Georgia, and you can weigh in on Georgia as well, what do you see playing out in November now that you did a piece on Young voters don't like any of these people. <laughs> and so who knows if they come out to the ballot box. We've got a bunch of key races happening uh, in different House and Senate seats. There's people that are not running for re-election. Uh, I forget the number of how many open uh, House of Representatives, the seats there are that are going to be contested in November. What's your take? What are some races that you're watching? I know you covered the South as a focus, but what are some races that you're watching, how you see playing out specifically uh, in the state that you are currently living in, in Georgia?
0: Broad strokes themes, one of the biggest things that's playing out in the South that I think is so interesting but hasn't been very widely discussed is this proliferation of black candidates for statewide offices that have long been elusive to to black folks. So we have two black men running for a Senate seat in Georgia. That's never happened before in Georgia history. Uh, Sherry Beasley in North Carolina, the Democratic nominee in that state, where we saw um unprecedented unity behind her campaign. Um, Val Demings in Florida, very similar. Tim Scott is running for re-election, though very much on a glide path there in South Carolina. I think that is a huge just it's a it's a big it's a victory for representation, sure, though I suppose we're we're sort of past now talking a lot about representation on the ballot. However, in these offices, like the Senate, like the governor's mansion, of course, with Stacey running, this has never been seen before. And the kind of money and institutional support that is getting poured into these races is, is just remarkable to me and something that uh, is not lost on me. I think that's, that's one big theme that I, can, that I can point to across the South. Um, another thing that I'll be watching for in November is you're seeing also in a number of these Southern states, particularly Uh, North Carolina and Mississippi, a little bit in Alabama, but those are the two places that I followed a bit. Also Arkansas, um, where I didn't mention Chris Jones running against Sarah Huckabee Sanders, another Black man trying to to, uh, make it into a governor's mansion. There are people who are trying to recreate the Abrams model of running up the score in these heavily Democratic metro cities, southern cities in their respective states, and then turning out in high levels, usually uh, rural black folks or rural low income, um, low turnout voters that might lean democratic to try to turn these otherwise ruby red states either purple or just kind of push them in that direction. A lot of people have tried to, to apply the, the Abrams model to their respective states. November will be a test of whether or not the Abrams model is one size fits all. If that can be something that um, can be recreated for these marquee top of ticket races or if it's effective for um, congressional or even state house races, which is another dynamic I think we're seeing now where Democrats have uh, woken up to the reality that a uh, number of these these policies, particularly on abortion and on election law, I think those are the two biggest. Um, you know, the state houses are incubators or were incubators of those of those laws as we see them all the way up to the Supreme Court. So they've realized that when you're talking about mobilizing voters and flipping seats, um, it really also needs to happen if they if their party wants to be successful at the state house level too. So those are my those are my sleeping my sleeping takes uh, for for the South as I see it now five months into, into my tenure. Okay.
2: And we will we will come back in November and play that audio. Right. Uh, she's a fantastic politics <laughs> reporter over at the New York Times. You check her out, follow her on Twitter. She's a great follow on Twitter. She wrote these fantastic pieces, support journalism. So go check out those articles on the New York Times app or site. Maya King, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I truly appreciate it. Can't thank you enough and continue success to you. And please stay safe.
0: Thank you. You as well. Thank you so much for having me. i um, really, really glad we could have the conversation.
4: This episode is brought to you by KitCaster. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. How do funded startup founders attract prospects and talent? Podcast interviews. How do entrepreneurs with exits find new deals? Podcast interviews. How do C-suite execs differentiate in crowded markets? Podcast interviews. Kitcaster books you on top podcasts. Click the link in the show notes for a special offer. Celebrate good conversation.
2: All right. Our thank yous there to the new friend of the show. Nick, we're making a lot of friends of the show here. Uh, Maya King, check out her work at the New York Times. Uh, We've mentioned this about local journalism. Obviously, the New York Times is... Uh, local in some sense, but obviously they've become this big national brand. But national outlets, New York Times, Washington Post, Politico, Reuters, we've had a bunch of correspondents from there. Nick and I have subscriptions to these places, right? Consuming news, diversifying where you get your news sources from. That's what you got to do. And she was fantastic. I mean, look, anybody who listens to the show regularly will know I use the word fantastic. If you have a synonym, for fantastic. So I stopped using that word. Send it to me. Can we please talk podcast? I, I will credit you. No, 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 You don't get to give them right now. Stand out. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about Age-worthy. what Maya just mentioned. There's a bunch there. Um, at the core of this, Nick, I would love to know. And one thing I forgot to ask her, uh, but again, this is not part of her article. Uh, 18 to 29, how many million people in that group are registered to vote right now? How many, how many people in that age demo are registered to vote? The impact, right? Because their poll is a sample size, right? Maybe 800 to 1,000 registered voters or non-registered voters. Um, you know, It's something that, of course, I'm thinking of it now. She signed off. But wh- wh- what is that actual number? And then how do we, how, do those people know that they need to go to the ballot box? But not only do they need to go, they need to grab their friends and go. Like other people have mentioned this across the media spectrum. This is not Mike Leon coming up with this out of thin air. You need to grab your friends and go to the ballot box. What were some of your takeaways from not only Meyer? She's fantastic, but, but uh, the piece that she wrote and then some of the other stuff on, on the key races that she's watching.
4: Yeah. I mean, um, I'll, I'll begin with just where, like, which we talked about with her before she, before, you know, we hit the record button, right. Um, Southern strategy, you know, she's based out of Atlanta. You know, she's seeing the Southeast in a really interesting place. You know, there is an opportunity that we're seeing, Purplishness, I guess we could say in in the South, you know, particularly we saw in Georgia, obviously with John Ossoff, uh, you know, Raphael Warnock, you know, winning their respective elections, which played a huge role in obviously where we are now. Um, and she brought up a really good point, you know, you have two men running for a Senate seat, two black men running for a Senate seat in Georgia, never been done before. Um, Stacey Abrams, you know, once again, you know, in the governor's race, should she win, first black governor of Georgia, very big deal. The South is an interesting place right now politically, and she brought a lot of insight that speaks to it. You know, Mike, to the other point that you brought up about young voters, it's something that you know I railed about you know on a recent episode. And you brought up some really you know salient uh, points, you know, in that interview. And but she hits a really couple key areas. I think one of the most telling pieces is the idea that you know there are people who are not quite committed to sharing, you know, who they would vote for, what party they sub- they subscribe to. And I mentioned it, you know, when we were talking to her. You know, there's a real problem now that the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, neither of which may appeal to young voters, you know. And we, you and I, run in circles. Where we hear the occasional person that talks about, well, well, I don't believe in either party, you know. And and they tend to, you know, talk about a, I'll say mythical third party because, you know, what the third party has produced in the form of Jill Stein, Gary Johnson. Um, You know, we think about um, Ralph Nader back in 2000. You know, it's like these strands of ideology, but it's not quite a defined party. That's just people who are apathetic. Uh, The same group of people that Donald Trump, I think, did a great job of winning over in 2016. And I think we're seeing that level of apathy play itself out with younger voters. But as you were asking, and I keep screaming about, you know, voting is your only option here to not vote is to say that you don't want to be a part of the process. And if you don't want to be a part of the process, then you don't get the right to, you can, if you want, complain about where you are right now. I keep bringing this up about you know Medicare goes through Congress, no problem. Military spending goes through Congress, no problem. Student loan debt, crickets. Why? Well, just, just look at any age demographic breakdown of Congress. These people don't care. These people don't have student loans. It's not the priority, and the only way you're going to get that solved is you're going to have to get more people who represent your views. It was funny that you know the people she interviewed said, "Well, if I could. I'd vote for Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, you know, Congresswoman out of New York," and I, I you know, half jokingly believe like you understand she represents a single district in the state of New York. She's not running for any national seat. But I understand the enthusiasm of what she brings and, and what younger leaders across the world represent that we're just not seeing in this country. And, and young people are fed up. And that's what she pointed to.
2: Yeah. It speaks to this country not being evolving. You know, I mean, everyone talks about how we're, we're like years ahead of where we were back then. Are we? Are we seeing oh, some of not? the things no, that are coming down? Exactly. So. We leave it there. A thank yous to Maya King again. Uh, if you want to check out the video of this uh, interview with Maya that we just did, check check it out on our YouTube channel. Type in "Can we please talk there?" and you can see all the video clips of all the recent guests that we've had on the program. Audio platforms, you know by now: Apple, Spotify, Google, Castbox, uh, Good Pods. Follow us on Good Pods for sure. They follow us, so shout out to the folks at Good Pods. But whatever platform you listen to us on, leave us a five star review and comment. Come on for me not for nick for me uh shout out to our a our hosting platform we couldn't do it without them and you know we can't do it without you the people that listen to this program good bad or indifferent we thank you each and every week for listening to this program as always i am mike leon
4: and as always begging you to be civically engaged i'm nick saveri have a good one everybody